part of our time today, it's good to have the church hear from these men individually, uh, how the Lord has worked in their lives and share their testimony. We've asked both of these men to be prepared to do that uh, this morning. And so I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Trey Crawford and Drew Kahn to go back to Trey, Jerry, and Don. And Don Kahn and Drew will come and share their testimony. church-going family, uh, which many of them have blessed me with their presence today. I'm a husband of 10 years, uh, father of a, of a four-year-old daughter, Callie. I work as a school teacher of, of math and science. I teach sixth grade uh, at Wakefield Middle School. With that background, uh, my life growing up was about doing what I thought was the right thing. I didn't realize that I wasn't, and currently, not good enough to ever um, make myself good enough to spend eternity with God in heaven. So my life before Christ was the stereotypical of this world, teenage and 20-something male behavior, seeking inappropriate relationships with, with girls, occasionally drinking to excess, and using foul language. Uh, during that part of my life, my mind before Christ didn't want to consider Romans 3.23, which says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I didn't believe that I had done anything that bad. But on Father's Day, 2001, in a Sunday worship service similar to this, because God was using a preacher that day who was teaching on Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one will boast. That message by God through the Holy Spirit was that my life was missing a relationship with Jesus. And the words written in Romans 6.23, which says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. These words are evidence that I don't need to, nor can I do anything to be right with God. All I need is, that, is faith that Jesus Christ was and is the only good person earn my way into heaven. It's Romans 5.8 that explains that, which says, but God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That sacrifice and that belief followed by these words in Romans 9, or 10, verse 9, says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These words are why I'm saved. So what's my life like now? Well, I don't do any of that other stuff I mentioned before <laughs> because those are empty pursuits. Since Christ entered my life, I spend my time and try to fill my mind with activities that lead me closer to the one who made me, like spending time with the Father in a quiet time, listening to and to what he wants to teach me by reading his word, serving in his body, this church, as a small group leader to high school students. And I think, and sometimes more importantly, showing the world by way of my job that there is someone more important to devote your life to 
that being Jesus Christ. Not doing that negative stuff and doing these positive things doesn't make me perfect or even better than anyone else in this world. But what sets me and others like me apart is that we know we need someone else's actions to make us right with God. And that someone is Jesus Christ. His sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection after death on that cross. Please pray with me. Pray with me, church. Father, you made us. You love us. Your son died on the cross for the wrong things that we do and will do. Father, I ask your forgiveness of my sins and pray for others to seek forgiveness of theirs. Father, I ask that you use my life and the lives of all those listening to give glory to you, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. share with him this, but one of my first conversations I had with Trey about seven years ago was at his house, and he shared with me that he just wanted to learn how to grow closer to the Lord, and uh, he was going to do whatever he could to learn that. And I've watched over seven, almost eight years now as he has done that with every person that's come in, leadership from the youth and others, he's sought relationships with that person with that goal in mind of learning what it means to walk with the Lord. Uh, I'm going to ask Don Connolly now if he'll come and share how the Lord's worked in his life and the testimony of God's working. Good morning, everybody. I hope I didn't misunderstand, but I thought Jared said try to keep this under 35 minutes. So um, I'm going to have to discard most of this, but... uh, I'll start also with uh, just a little biography. Again, my name's Don Connolly. Um, I've been married for 27 years to my beautiful wife, Becky. We have two children. Uh, Christy is 25 and Michael's 22. Both are currently at the University of South Carolina, uh, one pursuing a graduate degree and the other undergraduate. I was born and raised in Delaware graduated from the University of Delaware in 1983. I was raised in a, in a Christian family. I went to church uh, every Sunday, but it wasn't really until I got to the University of Delaware and got involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship that I actually was confronted with the gospel and was made aware of the requirement for me to personally seek relationship and ask the Lord to be my Savior uh, that's not something that I, I could ever really recall hearing up until that point. I became a Christian at that time and began leading Bible studies uh, in small groups while I was at the University of Delaware. After that, I went into the Army. I was commissioned, spent eight years in the Army, and uh, after eight years, left the active uh, force and stayed in the Army Reserves for another 20 years after that. Uh, We moved here in 1992, November of 1992. Uh, My job is I'm a law enforcement coordinator with the United States Attorney's Office, and I'm also the uh, public information officer for them, and I just celebrated my 20th year in that position as well. Uh, In 2000, there was a revival here 
March of 2000 in the church here, and, and we got involved with Green Pine shortly after moving here in 1992. Uh, but there was a revival led by Dr. Harold Hudson, and I was at that time sort of doubting my faith and doubting whether or not uh, I was really saved. And he was preaching that that evening, and he used a verse that really spoke to my heart. This First John 5.13, where John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That evening I went forward. I rededicated my life uh, to the Lord. Uh, during my time here, I've served in a variety of positions in the church. I taught missions friends, uh, vacation Bible school. I uh, served on the finance committee. I'm still on the building and grounds committee, uh, the veterans outreach committee. Uh, co-taught uh, adult Sunday school. And I still fill in as a uh, substitute Sunday school teacher, and I'm the uh, class administrator for the In His Sights adult Sunday school class. Um, but I've been approached three times uh, to be a deacon, and the first two times I declined. Uh, I just didn't think that I could dedicate the time necessary that you all deserve with deacons. And I sort of said to myself, well, maybe after I retire uh, from the Army Reserves, I'll have more time. I can be in church on Sundays more often. And about a month after I retired, I was asked again to be a deacon. So I, I took that as a, a sign from the Lord that, yes, I should do that. And uh, I, I, I'm truly humbled, uh, and I really do covet your prayers, uh, that the Lord would give me wisdom as I try to serve him in this position and serve you as well so that we can bring honor and glory uh, to Christ here at Green Pines. So thank you very much. Thank you, Don. It's been a pleasure to get to know as well as he's seeking the Lord in his work and as you can see also in, uh, in serving through our church ministry. I want to ask that you turn in your Bibles now to First uh, Timothy, chapter one.
trust. Church leadership is a sacred trust. It's been given to you by God. It is something in which we are to obey. It is given just for a little while. We will not be, I, I will not be pastor here forever. There will be a day and time where it will be passed on either by death or by departure. But either way, we can't get past the idea that our ministry is a short while and is to be passed on to someone else. And that's what uh, Paul is giving to Timothy. And we are under the authority. Here's the thing. God doesn't call volunteers for church leadership. What What do you mean? God doesn't call volunteers for church leaders. In other words, you may be thinking there is a sense of, I'm going to volunteer. But not from God's perspective. Not from God's perspective. It is something that He has been working in your life. You see, because if I'm volunteering in leadership in a church ministry, then I can volunteer out of that. And when God calls people to church ministry, it is His calling. I was kidding uh, with uh, one of the uh, the members that was drafted into the soundboard area this morning and, and that you experience drafting every once in a while in a church. Well, in church leadership, it's very much that same way. There is a sense where I am drafted into church leadership. Uh, uh, Don Conley will talk about that. You know, there's a sense where, you know, maybe this won't happen, but then he realized, no, God is speaking into the timing of events. That there is not a choice. God is at work. It is a charge that God is drafting us to. And so we are under God's authority. People cannot exercise good authority until they're under authority of God. And whomever God places in authority in their life. We need to understand what we're being charged to do. He says, this charge and trust to you. You remember what he said, verse 5? Notice what's verse 5. What's the aim of the charge? Love. Issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The charge church leaders are called to is not an institution. The charge is not to an office. The charge is to a people. It is to build up God's church wherever He calls you. We need to understand that sometimes we think, well, I'm just going to teach Sunday school. And I'm a Sunday school teacher, and I'm going to teach my curriculum, and I'm going to have an hour, and I'm going to, I gotta have something to say because I gotta teach this class. The thing is, Trey, we're not teaching a class, are we? We're teaching people. We gotta keep that connection that the people is part of the end of what we do. And so deacon is not just making sure the doors are locked, making sure the lights are cut off, uh, making sure that, that folks have what they need to be baptized. Uh, it, it's not just these things. The end is people. And that we're building them up. The aim of our charge is love. And so it's a sacred trust. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, what he's saying here is that the church has affirmed Timothy's role. There were a time earlier in history where they made prophecies, where they made affirmations for Timothy. There's some examples we find in the book of Acts. 
In Acts chapter 13, verse 1 to 3, it says this, There was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so that was the uh, Antioch example that we have in the book of Acts of how this went, up, went, up, went, went down. Is that there was acknowledgement of the Spirit of God, an affirmation and demonstrating of that through the laying of hands and prayer. And so that's why in just a little bit we're going to do that exact same model of laying on of hands and prayer as a church recognizing that this is a calling in their life. Did you notice both of them shared what their ministry is already in our church? When we call folks to deacon ministry, it's not, to, it's not some hope to get them engaged. All right? We're not going to say, hey, you know what, let's, let's make them a deacon and maybe then they'll start being active in our church. That's entirely wrong. It is a recognition of their service already in the church body. And so when we lay on of hands, it is to say we've seen this person at work that they are serving and they, they lift up the church and they make it a goal to love the church body and they put the needs of the church above their own and they have done this throughout time. And so they're recognizing that. In Acts chapter 16, verse 1 through 4, it's where Paul comes across Timothy. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra in Iconium. Did you get that? He was well spoken of. They already had established, Timothy had established relationship with them. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And guys, he thought it was bad sharing the testimony here publicly. Uh, for, for Timothy, it was a little bit more to that. Uh, and, and embarking on ministry with him. Uh, and so there was this recognition of the home church of these of Timothy. And 1 Timothy 4, just a couple chapters, a few chapters down in the book, verse 14 and 15, he, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. All right? And so that's what we are going to be doing here in just a little bit. And so we're going to be praying for you. So you who are deacons, are pastors in our church body, uh, if you've been ordained uh, in our church or in another church, uh, this is a, an opportunity for us to pray over these men and pray for God's working. Pray for prophecy. Pray, say, God, we desire this to be accomplished through them. And that's what we're going to have in just a little bit. Now, we'll keep on reading here. Notice why this is being done. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made previously about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Ministry is a sacred trust, but ministry is also a long fight. Ministry and church leadership is a long fight. This is the image that he's using with Timothy, good warfare. It's not a battle, warfare. It's not just one instant, it's ongoing in our, our uh, life. Now, 
Who exactly are we fighting against? Now, it's interesting that Paul's about to name names. He's about to name individuals in the church. (laughs) There is a struggle in the church body, church members. But Paul has said in another passage in, in Ephesians that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness and spiritual places. And so what he's saying there is that ultimately we are fighting against Satan, against the enemy of God. Sometimes it's fleshed out in the church body. Sometimes it's fleshed out in ourselves. We battle ourselves. How many of you know if you do exercise and you're doing a marathon type uh, work or a triathlon, the battle is really with yourself. And the longer you run, the longer you exert, your battle is against yourself whether or not you want to quit or not. And so what he's saying is that in this warfare, we are battling against ourselves, but we're battling against Satan. Uh, In 1 Timothy 6, verse 12 to 13, same letter, he says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He described himself in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Guys, you need to understand, when you work in church leadership, you are engaging in warfare. It is fight. There will be times when there will be problems. Expect problems. Expect criticism. Expect discouraging moments or times or seasons. It's a warfare. It's a battle. It's a grind. It's church ministry. It's leading in church ministry. It's love. The aim of our charge is love. And love, by definition, is sacrificing your needs, your desires for the good of someone else. A deacon is someone who says, you know what, I feel like I really need this. I want this in my life. But the church needs this. The body needs this. I will lay aside what I want, what I desire for the good of the church. And that's a fight. That's a battle. But we remember that Satan is the one we're fighting against. Satan attacks the church by blinding the minds of unbelievers, by crippling the credibility of believers, by attacking marriage and family, attacking leaders of the church, and using false religious systems. We see this in various passages in in the New Testament, how Satan specifically uses these methods. And so when you step up and say, by the drafting of God that I'm going to lead in church ministry, then you are vulnerable for satanic attacks. As church is vulnerable for satanic attacks, as Satan hates Christ, hates the glory of God, and wants the glory for himself. Know that. Be aware of that. Don't think it's just volunteering for another good organization. It's not at all that. 
But notice he says in verse 19, holding the faith. We wage the good warfare, warfare by holding faith. And that's the understanding of the gospel. Hold on to the gospel. Not only is it that which saves you, it's that which we live by. It's what forms the unity of this church. The tenets of the gospel that, that uh, our deacons shared with you, our deacon candidates shared with you this morning, of what is the gospel. It is the understanding and belief that all are sinners, that we are born with a bent against God. Know that. Be aware of that. That God saves us by His grace. It's not by works. And so we don't go down a religious system that makes a hierarchy based on our works. It's based on Christ. And it's that it's done through His gifting of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus has to be God to pay for our sins. That His blood is enough. He has to be man to represent us. That it is a work of God. It is a gift. It is in God's heart to save us. And that His power is sufficient in the resurrection. That it conquers death. These are all parts of the gospel. To know that we follow Him and that He is Lord. We do not... Go against that. We guard that in our church body, that that is primary. And so we hold the faith, we hold the gospel, and we hold a good conscience. This lets us know that it's not just what you believe, it's what you do. Ministry is dependent more on your personal integrity, more on your walk with the Lord than your techniques. More than your methods. More than what man brings to it is what God is doing in our life and that we will walk with God. I've shared with deacons that above all things we are to be leaders. It's more about who you are than what you do. We've asked church members that when they join our church that they commit to the unity of the church. We ask deacons to lead in that. We do that by loving people. We ask deacons to lead in that. We, we do that by uh, obeying whatever leaders God places there. We do that by learning not to gossip. But we ask the deacons to do that. We ask them to support members to support the testimony of the church by the godly lifestyle, by being here. We ask leaders to do that. We ask deacons to do that by welcoming those who come. We ask deacons to lead in these areas, to support the ministry of this church, to do so by uh, giving financially. We ask deacons to lead in those areas. It's more about who you are than what you do. Ministry is a sacred trust. It is a long fight. It is dependent on your personal integrity, not just your technique and methodology. We hold faith and a good conscience. But notice this. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Here's another sobering truth about ministry and church leadership. Not all survive it. Not all survive leadership and church ministry. We have an example of two. Hymenius and Alexander. Just that fact, realize... Not all who have been in your place, not all who have been ordained, recognized by a church body, who have been asked to serve as deacon or as pastor or as elder, there have been many men who've sat where you've sat and no longer sit there. Not all survive ministry and church leadership. Sobering. 
I've now been out of seminary uh, 12 years, pastoring for 14 and, and ministered before that. I remember hearing pastors tell me, older pastors, that they have influence later on in life by process of elimination. In other words, there are quite a few that started with them, but not many continued on. Even now, in the short time that I've been here, I know quite a few men who were starting with me, who are no longer serving in ministry, in church leadership ministry. Some, because they no longer had the heart to do it. Some, because they no longer had the character to do it. Some, because they no longer have the faith to do it. Every year, there are deacons and elders who stop and say, we can't go on. Hymenius and Alexander were two. But it wasn't so much that they could not, but they would not. They would not continue on. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander. These names are mentioned in various other places in the Bible, and you often wonder, what did they do? I mean, can you imagine that? Reading a letter to the church body... Jason, Dick, you've made shipwreck of your faith. We're going to hand you over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. You read that thing, is this, is this the Bible? I thought the aim of our charge is love. How is that? Love. Is it the same chapter of the letter? I mean, he's not even a different paragraph. He says these two things together. Some interesting thoughts as we read in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 and 19, the name Hymenaeus is mentioned again. We don't know for sure if it's the same Hymenaeus, but really, how many Hymenaeuses could there be? <laughs> Alexander, well, we're not too sure, that seems pretty common. But verse 14 and 19 of 2 Timothy 2, he says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Evidently, they were being quarrelsome about things that just didn't matter. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gain green. Irreverent babbling. To be speaking about things that are sacred, but not holding it sacred. To be thinking about and talking about the things of God, but not looking at it in reference to the God to whom it belongs. This talk is contagious. This spirit is like gain green. It has an influence. And you recognize it for what it is. And then he says, among them are Hymenaeus. And then another guy, Philetus, that wasn't mentioned, obviously, in 1 Timothy. Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. 
Lord willing, when we get to 2 Timothy, we will talk at detail about that specific case because there's references back to numbers that Paul is making here and, and those who went against the leadership of Moses. But nonetheless, what you see here in Hymenius's case is what is first significant, so much so that to be named publicly that he still does not repent to the point where he brings it up in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And basically saying this person is not a follower of God. And God will hold them in account. Now what about this phrase, who handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blasphemy? We're thinking, can we do that? What most people would understand this to be, and I would agree with this, is that Paul is recognizing that they are no longer under the protective fellowship umbrella of the church body. And as such, not being under the church protective umbrella, they are open and vulnerable to the attacks of Satan in ways they could not be before. Now just think about that for a second. If that understanding is true, how important is it to be involved, engaged with the church body. Not just sitting here. Okay? Not just sitting here on a certain time, certain place. But to be engaged with the relationships of the church family. That it, if this is true, it does provide a protective means against the works of Satan. It may be through someone praying for you, a believer. It may be through accountability and confronting and encouragement to say, you know what, I noticed this about you, that this is going on in your life. Are you aware about this? I want to pray for you. I want to help you walk under God's direction in this. To not have that in your life means that you no longer have the voice of God through the church body. Do you know that God's voice speaks through the church body? Whose body is this? It's not my body. It's the body of Jesus Christ. And to be in the church body is a, a way for God to speak into your life. There is the word of God. There is the prayer. There are circumstances. But there is the church body through whom he can talk to you. Through whom he can admonish and challenge and correct and instruct us. And when we remove that out of our life, then we are more susceptible to attacks of Satan. And so what Paul evidently is bringing out is that these two individuals, Hymenius and Alexander, are no longer to be regarded as part of the church body and, and thus to be handed over Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Still within this, I, I would want you to note that Paul's hope is that they would be brought back to the church. His, his goal was that they would learn not to blaspheme. Why? So that perhaps maybe after learning that, that, they can be reconciled with the church body. But until they learn not to blaspheme, they cannot be part of the church body. Now, why is that? Because what unites the church, what brings the church together, what makes it one, is the very name of God through His Spirit. And when someone is speaking against the name of God, against His Spirit, they are attacking that which makes us who we are. I've shared before when folks join our church and our class, there may be quite a bit of differences in the church, but there are some things we cannot disagree about. 
That is the gospel, the core essentials of our faith, of what we believe. If we disagree here, then please do not continue to, uh, to try to join our church. There's no point. When people are part of our church body, Maybe they've come to believe that at one point. But when they come to conclusions, they hold firm even after prayer and, and, and instruction where they say, I don't believe that anymore. Then it may be important for both that person and the church to recognize what has taken place. Not so that they can be dismissed but that they can be taught with the hope of being brought back under the authority of God and His church body. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 5, may be an exact uh, instance where Paul is making reference to this, to another church. He writes in chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are... And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is a hard thing to figure out, to pray. But all I can say to you, it's in the Scripture. I'm not making this up. This is not the type of thing I would make up. But this is right here in the text, and it's, it was practiced in the early church. We need to keep in mind, the love of God and the holiness of God goes hand in hand. What makes the love of God so powerful is the holiness of God. And what's the holiness of God that is so majestic and appealing is the love of God. And we cannot separate one from the other. And if we do, then we undermine the other. If we say, I want God's love, but I don't want His holiness, it undermines His love. Because how can we know that it's going to be true and that He'll be faithful to the end? Unless we know that God hates lying. And He's holy. Deacons, church leaders, not all survive ministry. It's a sacred trust. And I would encourage you in that God's called you to it. And if God's called you to it, He is going to provide to you everything needed to do what He's called you to do. It is dependent not on your techniques and methodology, but in your integrity, walking with the Lord. It is a long fight. But praise God, we serve a warrior. We serve the one that every warrior in the Bible in the Old Testament pointed to. When David fought Goliath, it was to point to the Jesus who would one come, one day come and fight sin for us. We remember Veterans Day last week. Remember the greatest veteran in Jesus Christ. He is our warrior Savior. He is our warrior God. He is our warrior pastor. And we are under his orders. It is a sacred trust and he has called us 
to a warfare, a long fight, because it's hard to love. And that's the aim of our charge, is to love. And not all will survive. And that's why we watch and pray and we hold on to Jesus Christ and make sure that he is great in our hearts. And and what I would encourage you, those who pray for uh, Don and Trey, pray that they have an appetite for Jesus Christ. They have a heart for God, that they desire Jesus more than anything else. Pray that in their life. Let our church affirm what we've seen God already do. And praise God, we have a warrior Savior who's already died on our behalf and defeated death through the resurrection. We're going to have a time of prayer, a time of recognizing that Jesus is our Savior. Let's pray.